So I think imagination is the ignition system for all this other stuff that we know we want and is really important, like foresight and anticipating the future, for empathy and imagining what it's like to be somebody else or living in other people's shoes, walking in other people's shoes, resilience and adaptation and dealing with the setbacks. And we know we, we care about those other things and stuff like entrepreneurship and innovation and scientific progress. All of that stuff requires imagination, but we almost never focus on it explicitly. And you could argue, it's not hard to argue that actually it's almost like we've designed our educational and our professional worlds to just crush imagination, right? Pound it out of people, pound it out of the students, pound it out of the teachers, pound it out of the middle managers, and it's viewed with suspicion. So I totally agree that it's this fundamental capacity that we need to foster and that people don't really know what to do with. The Center for Science of the Imagination has a mission of inspiring collective imagination for better futures. We're trying to work on getting people, trying to change our whole relationship to the future and get people to feel a sense of agency and responsibility. So it's not somebody else's problem. It's not completely hopeless. It's not that some people in white lab coats or some tech bros in Silicon Valley are going to solve it all for us. It's up to us. And if we're going to deal with that challenge, we need to start telling better stories, more inspiring, more inclusive stories about the future. So I think Solarpunk comes from a different angle. And I think it a, a lot of Solarpunk is trying to explore these very different models of human relationships and human agency. And it's a that kind of utopianism is, I think, really important. And that's part of what Solarpunk has right now is that energy of, of hopefulness. And that may be the most rebellious. So this is the fun inversion, is that the, the thing that makes Solarpunk is, I think, hope. This is episode 26 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast. And I'm your host, Julian Bleeker. You've heard me rail on about this thing called the imagination and the importance of fostering and developing a strong, active imagination. I've used the metaphor of the imagination as a muscle, as something that needs to be actively exercised, taken out for a walk in the woods, hikes on trails, rides up long winding roads. I don't know if the imagination is like a muscle, and I've heard that maybe that's the wrong metaphor, but I do know that when it is not used routinely, it falters when given even the most modest challenge to think of things outside of the ordinary, outside of the expected, outside of the normal. The imagination is the way we consider what could be and what could be is generally understood to be the future, what's next, what is possible. When our imagination has atrophied, we falter in considering the future and rely on what are ultimately unimaginative, routinized stories about possibility. Just Google the future and you'll see just in a range of things that all look quite the same. The future becomes knee-jerk tales that have been told to death to the point where they are effectively not imagining the future, or at best we think we're imagining the future, but it's really someone else's future. And the more we see someone else's future, the more we imagine other futures as quote-unquote the future rather than some other possibility. I imagine a world in which we would have science and technology-based creative studios In these studios, there would be polymaths investigating the adjacent possible opportunities, creating more than just products meant to be sold, but also ways of seeing and knowing the world outside of the expected. There would be a truly multiple inter-transdisciplinary creative studio where many diverse ways of seeing, thinking, building, making would work, investigate, and create, seeking out the adjacent possible opportunities across multiple human endeavors. A well-functioning imagination is able to find unexpected, unanticipated, and beautiful linkages and arrangements of bodies of knowledge across, between, and within disciplines. That kind of imagination sees connections in this way that yield new perspectives through linkages across epistemologies. That kind of imagination sees possibilities that many would find otherworldly. That kind of imagination sees insights where previously there were none. Parenthetically, and to be clear, what I mean by discipline is effectively what, in my 90s era college day, was known as a college major. 
Knowing both Adobe Illustrator and Microsoft Excel is not multidisciplinary. That's just knowing two different tools. My guest, Ed Finn, is the director of Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination. Yep, there's a Center for Science and the Imagination, and if you don't know about it, you'll want to know. They've been working for years in using design and storytelling to activate future imaginaries in and around and about climate fiction and many other disciplines. They've dived deep into solar punk with some anthologies. Many are freely downloadable. You know what? We, we need more centers like this, both academic, commercial, and independent. Places that value and tap into this unique and existentially vital capability of the human consciousness, which is its ability to imagine change, to imagine new possibilities. And not just the kind of possibilities that sell more iPhones, but the kind of possibilities that create adjacent opportunities to make the world a more habitable place. If that is an idea that gets you to pause and wonder how you can help create that, please get in touch with me here, either directly at julian at nearfuturelaboratory.com or join our Discord. Let's get kinetic about this. If you find some value in this podcast, please, please, please support it over at patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. And also subscribe to my newsletter over at buttondown.email slash designfiction. You can also show your support by actively and vigorously sharing the podcast throughout your team, your colleagues, and your organization. I'm also open to talking to you directly, facilitating a workshop on the many topics we discuss here, and working directly with you and your team to help foster richer engagement with the many critical topics discussed here and in the newsletter and the Near Future Laboratory Discord server. Oh, we uh, also have a book coming out soon called The Manual of Design Fiction. Stay tuned for more about that in future episodes. Okay, what else do I have here? New sponsor. Oh, seems like we have a new sponsor. Hey guys, it's us, Filthy Lucre. The Dow behind viral megaflexes like Strangled Elk and the Sheep Gun. And we're looking for people to join the team. You can pick from roles in sourcing, story, verification, and even enforcement. Best of all, if you have the right skills and experience, your buy-in cost is reduced, or even zero. Here's who we're after. Hyper-connected social butterflies who inhale analytics and exhale hits. On-chain wizards who deeply get crypto crunching. And of course, big hitters who grind it out and get it done. You've built and monetized games in Fortcraft, Mindblocks, and Robonite. But you want more than wistful winks, kinky candy, or power skins. Now's the time to up your game to the big time and get out of the basement. Not a grown-up? Not a problem. Say or show the words, purple neon crypto kids, to your smart assistant, and we can hook you up with a limited guardianship that will let you make and keep your bucks. Participation in Filthy Lucre is not an employment contract, and no obligations assumed to ensure compensation. No representations or guarantees are made regarding token values, which may vary over time. I, I love those Filthy Lucre guys. Um, definitely you want to check them out. Here we go. This is my conversation with Ed Finn. Director for Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination. It's good to see you, man. Yeah, you too. How are things out there? Things are good. We're in the, the final run of the semester. Just had a sort of a cool demo event at the end of the class I'm co-teaching. And now we're wrapping up the the day after which I will schedule no more meetings is rapidly approaching. And so all, all airplanes in the air need to land before then, <laughs> right. which is going to happen, but uh, we'll do our best. Yeah. Gravity just has a way of taking care of that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> nice. Beautiful. How about you? Yeah, it's just been, it's been a, it's been a fantastic and eye-opening couple of years, maybe since the last time we more, more properly talked. And I'm really enjoying like over the last trying to find the, the bright sunny spots out of all the chaos, but the, the, in, in the midst of, in the midst of everything we went through, I was like, everyone was like in, in pandemic lockdown mode, but very, and very quickly just said, you know what, I'm going to look at this. I don't know when I was a kid and like when we're not even just a kid, like when Christmas break would come around, when you could smell the, for me, it was always just like a fruit, like a clear 10 or 15 days where it's, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this project going. I'm going to do this one thing. I'm going to actually finish that chapter, whatever it was. Cause you just saw this window of uncluttered 
and then inevitably you realize, oh, you got to do stuff with family and people actually want your time and attention. And it's not that 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 break by any means. It's something else. Just you're shifting into a different set of gears of commitment. But I looked at I looked at the lockdown time mostly because like I didn't yeah, I didn't have like a typical, normal, ordinary, everyday job. I was like in the midst of trying to figure out what to do with my company and but I, I just use that. It felt like that kind of opportunity. And so the major project, one of the major projects that came out of that was both trying to figure out what to do with my company, but doing that as a design fiction project. Mm-hmm. So everything was like near and dear. So it's, I tried to imagine the future of the company by producing almost like over the top vision of the company for the future in the form of this annual report. And so that was like where I committed my time, but I needed to do pretty much everything in order to realize that, not just the ideas, but then actually constructing the design fiction, so creating, designing, you know, architecting the, the future studio, naming all the, the future employees, creating badges for them so I could just be as thorough as possible in that. So it was, it was, it was the, the logical, if insane conclusion that Julian Bleeker would, do like not just like, yeah it would be cool to do it but then like actually doing it so, so i have to ask how much of that was really for you and how much of that was to show to other people it's like creating a giant tabletop world or something yeah that's a really that's an apt way to put it it, it was that just completely nerding out and going so far down the rabbit hole with no possibility for someone coming along and saying, nah, I think you're getting carried away because <laughs> no one was allowed in because it was a quarantine pandemic until it was done. And so you emerged with, with this thing. So it was, I have to say from that in, in hindsight, like that's, and, and I could do the whole thing. Like I printed it out as a proper material artifact. So I'll have that thing that, that at least I can point to and people say, man, how was the pandemic for you? I'd be like, Oh, have a look. Here's this. <laughs> Here's the org chart and the seating yeah, plan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Here's the org chart and here's, here are the employees. That's Edgar. He works in logistics. <laughs> yeah. There's such an overlap between entrepreneurship and design fiction anyway, though. There's a, a tremendous uh, amount of crossover in trying to convince people that something is real enough to invest in. It's really just a subset of, I think, the design fiction skills. I think you're absolutely right. And it was a point that I I think I was trying to also simultaneously make. And my first, I have to credit Nick Foster, who you know, for pulling me out of my funk prior to actually figuring this out. Because I was, he's always been like alongside of pretty much every endeavor I have and just giving good, nice, friendly, kind of brotherly advice. And I was like, I just don't know how to imagine. What am I supposed to do? Like, I got to do a deck, the usual kind of pitch deck kind of thing. Why don't you take it as a design fiction project? I really like that. Yeah, that I've had that. I, I have that realization on a regular basis, where I, especially when it's related to explaining some new idea to other people, and I think, how can we convince them that this is a good idea and that this is real because it's so new. And then somebody comes along and says, yeah, but you've actually been doing this for seven years. Just show them that you've been doing it and you have this whole track record. And then it's this realization like, oh, it's just it's just a different way of framing this stuff that we've been doing. And now we can show that it does exist because we've been working on it. So there's this interesting relationship between the the practices, the methods and the whole idea of novelty and something new. And for a lot of people. They're very, they're receptive to the idea of new things in principle, but then in, in reality, they get really nervous if they think that it's an impossible thing. And yeah, for very many of these kinds of things where people, where you're, you're trying to take someone into a future, they're like these existing practices that now have become so hygienic and normal and expected that I think to a certain degree, people don't expect, don't understand those practices as effectively a kind of, it's a future fiction. It's a science fiction. Like for in, in the case that I was dealing with, it's like I had these and I had them for years and would just keep revising them. Essentially just these enormous Excel spreadsheets that were financial scenarios. And they were, they were created by like my wonderful accountant and his team. So they were, yeah, this is what we do. We create these kinds of, we create these future forward spreadsheets and they're very articulate. They've got, and but they seem just as a hygienic kind of framework that 
people who you might talk to who are saying, show me the numbers, they expect, oh, spreadsheet, got it. Excel, I know this world. This is not a fiction. This is like a forecast and it's a tool. But then when you say, I think the, the, the key thing for me was like, yeah, that's a kind of, that's an archetype of a design fiction. And what, what became, made it fun for me was to actually translate that into this visual form to say, yeah, that's the spreadsheet. That's the spreadsheet that you would expect to see at the end of the annual report when people are like, okay, where are the numbers? Let me see the P&L. But it doesn't paint the picture. It doesn't show actually what does it look like in the same way. And I, I found that really fascinating. And so yeah, people seem to be really have a certain fluency with the Excel spreadsheet archetype of the fictional future. But when you go to just imagine a world, that, yeah, I don't know, you just be doing a bunch of hand waving. It's a spreadsheet. That's hand waving. Yeah, I'm continually gobsmacked by that. The And I think there's some interesting questions here, like the idea of math as a kind of language and numerical progressions as almost like a kind of comfort object that some people have, which I'm not saying to be dismissive of them, because I think we all have those. It's just that some of them, some of us use stories that are verbal or images or something not mathematical. But the privileging of numbers over other kinds of information is also really interesting. And the whole idea that, oh, we built this model and the model is very complicated. And so therefore we should rely on the model is going to be really, we worked really hard on it and it's really complicated. And so therefore we should probably trust it more than we would trust a human, which is where we get into all kinds of trouble with our, our relationship with computation more broadly. But there is something really almost magisterial about a, a gigantic spreadsheet. How can you argue with it? It just goes on and on and you can keep scrolling and maybe it has pivot tables and stuff. It's got its own like sliding doors and magical moments. So I can understand that. And I think I'm willing to accept the spreadsheet at the same sort of ontological value level of reality as I would accept the story about the future. But it, what gets problematic is when people say, oh, no, the spreadsheet is just much more concrete. It's much better than the story. And I guess it goes the other way. For some people, the spreadsheet is meaningless and the story is the only thing that counts. Yeah, that's right. And it's fun to bring those two things together. And in, if, you know, for the point of saying, look, these are just two sides of, of the same kind of vision, the same kind of story. Yeah, I, I, I think. I found it actually, it, it, obviously it was, it was self-indulgent. So it was very rewarding and satisfying to do. And along the way I got to learn again, it was like a selfish thing to just learn how to do become fluent and even perhaps good at doing 3d rendering, which was always something that I wanted to do since I was like a little kid. So it's cool. Now I get a chance to do it, but, and, but I found it also quite effective in a kind of practical way that it, it, it really opened conversations up in a way that I don't think would have happened otherwise to where people like whether or not they, they could begin to see with a kind of depth to into my, I guess, my crazy imagination about what, what re was really in my head and probably in a way that I, I had trouble articulating in the typical, okay, you got 10 minutes, kid, give me your best pitch kind of way. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I love the way that all of these kinds of storytelling and design fiction tell you a lot about the people who created them as well. And what's that great concept from economics, the depreciation of future value? There's some shorter way of saying that. You could imagine that there's a sort of a style, an aesthetic in, encoded in a spreadsheet. You say, oh, you have a 5% depreciation of future value. That says a lot about who you are as a person, what you think is going to happen in the future. So this is what's really interesting about design fiction in general is that you're not just telling stories about the future or creating objects of the future. What all stories do is that they encode a little model of causality of why things happen that is often only implied or indirectly referenced, but because something exists, you say, well, of course, this has to exist. And this the causal implication tells us that all these other things had to happen for this thing to exist. And that is really neat in the spreadsheet, too, because it encodes all of these causal assumptions, just the whole concept of the profit and loss and the idea that you would be able to model it out and that you don't need to worry about 
the, the random unpredicted external events because your model is going to, it's all going to work out in the end. There's something fascinating about that. And again, it becomes a sort of comfort object to us, I think, intellectually in our relationship with the future to say crazy things will happen. But we're going to, we understand the causal rules of the universe. So we can, th- this exercise is worthwhile because we can chart this path from here to there. Yeah. This all came up for me in this. So I co-taught this class this semester with a, a guy named Robert Lee Kamwa. He's an electrical engineer, but ASU has been really getting into VR. Mm-hmm. And we have this partnership with a company called Dreamscape that does retail VR, commercial VR, but they're also now partnering with ASU to develop VR for education. And ASU is really interested in online education and distance learning and all that stuff. And so this is a huge opportunity space. So our our class was getting a group of students together over the course of a semester to try to create collaboratively one, it was one giant VR project to create an experience all working together. And some of my favorite moments in the project, first of all, having these conversations about causality and how are we going to tell this story and how are we going to give the people experiencing it meaningful agency in the story. But the other part I really liked was the design fiction stuff. And I actually put a link into Corner Convenience, if you remember that thing you made years ago, because I think that uh, the ephemera, the stuff, the little stuff around the edges is so much fun. And it's so meaningful because it carries all that causal freight. People entering this experience are are interns in in Theta Labs. And so you print up the business card for Theta Labs, but you also have the waiver that you have to sign, which has got some coffee stains on it. And all of those little things are, I think in a lot of ways, they really sell an experience much more than the thing itself, or it changes the category for me. Anytime I see people making that gesture of kind of waving the story outside of its contained little box or medium and saying, oh no, it's here's this physical artifact of the of this thing. Here's a gesture, here's a costume, here's a character improving from the story here in real life. The boundary is blurred. That feels like such a gesture of care in a way and playfulness to say, oh, we want, we take this seriously enough that we brought in this like giant clown or whatever. Like where we're gonna we're gonna bring the, this playfulness out into the real. What is it about that damn coffee stain? That kind of, that gesture, there is that thing, the suspension of disbelief. So David Kirby's kind of thing. You bring into something to a moment where you realize or c- c- confuse this as, no, it's no longer in that, what, what I think I understood by you saying that container. In other words, the extra, the academic exercise, say, they, they just, why would you put a coffee stain on that thing? I don't get it. You're, you're, you ruin the purity of it. But then in the moment when you see it as a thing, as an artifact with a coffee stain on it, and maybe you're not involved in the production of it, but you just come across it, something happens. It's, there's like a double take moment or there's, wait, what is this? I just found this. And w- What is it that's going on there? I have a couple of thoughts about this because it's something that I love. I love seeing it when people do it and I love creating it. One part of this is that uh, nothing is perfect. Anything that is perfect and perfectly created is clearly artificial, clearly a product of fiction or design because things in the real world are they have their own mortality. And this is a, an idea I picked up from one of, a Corey Pressman, one of our other collaborators. She used to talk about books as part of what makes books, physical books special is that they have this mortality to them and they can carry the scars of their passage. And if you have a book that you care about, Part of the reason you care about it might be because it has a coffee stain in it or it has a stub from a a concert that you went to or somebody wrote a note in it or you just remember that it where you were when you read it for the first time or that the there's this physical history to to these things and that they're the fact that they're imperfect suggests their fragility and their existence in a way that feels much more real because they like oh this is damaged or more interesting because I, I, and this brings me to the second thing about the reason I think this is important, which is that it allows you to create a history for mm. your, for the, for your object, just like you might create a history for your character. And this is a, a common novice 
storytelling mistake. The difference between a shallow persona and a real character is this idea that somebody just pops out of nowhere. They pop out of central casting. They have no past. They have no uh, trajectory. They're just, oh, it's a doctor who lives in Minneapolis. And as soon as you start probing at that, you realize how important the history is because otherwise they're not, they're just not really a person. They're still a two-dimensional cardboard cutout. And the same thing I think goes for, for stuff and stuff that has a history to it. Then it becomes this exercise like Kim Stanley Robinson likes to, likes to talk about. It's a future history. So if you imagine a speculative future, but then you populate that future with its own history, a series of events and things that connect us in the present to that future, it all becomes a lot more powerful because, again, it feels more real. And you introduce this kind of temporality and mortality to the story. So th those are, I think, a couple of the things. And I think just the idea of error and, and it, I, I've been talking in this kind of big hand wavy cosmic sense, but it can really just be like, oh, obviously you've you left this piece of paper somewhere and then you put your coffee cup on it. The little histories are are what make up the big histories. And so the concreteness of the detail is really what matters. Yeah. And then, and it's what goes on in that, in that moment that the, the coffee stain is taken as evidence of a history that makes the thing leap out of the box of that contained box. Any, like what goes on? Does it, what does it activate in the mind? I think it triggers a few different things. There's this, this great book, Design Unbound, that has this chapter on pragmatic imagination and talks a little bit about this. I think it triggers first memory because we've all done this. And so it triggers a, a sensory and experiential memory of times that you've done this, or you can, even if you don't touch the paper, you can imagine it just makes, it connects in a, a physical visceral sense to things that we've done. So it makes the object seem more real in that way. Mm -hmm. Even if it's only suggested or fake, sometimes we, the, we printed the waiver with the coffee stain already on it. It wasn't a real coffee stain, which would have been better because then you would have had that little crinkling of the paper, but even still it's enough to evoke that. And then I think it prompts this, the, the sort of wandering mind part of your brain. I'm always, when I'm observed, when I'm stepping into a new experience like this, I feel like I'm operating at multiple levels of consciousness. And there's a part of me that's really focused on what is the, the story I'm supposed to be understanding. But then there are all these other parts of my brain that are, some, one part of the brain is just going to go off and be thinking about the coffee stand and thinking about how did that happen? Was it this guy? Was it his coffee? Where did the coffee come from? And is there coffee around here? And gosh, I would like some coffee. Do you have any coffee? You can, you, there's these little sort of sub-processes that run in the background. And sometimes depending on what the, 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 the context is, sometimes they come back and bring up some kind of answer. And then five minutes later, you realize that the shape of the coffee stain is exactly like the shape of the mug that's in the background somewhere else. Sometimes the, there, there are these sort of mad detectives in your mind, like this X-Files squad with a giant pinboard wall with yarn on it. And sometimes they run something down. So I think that's part of it, that the a, a well-crafted narrative detail like that, a moment like that can give those other parts of the brain something to do. Mm -hmm. And this is, if a story is too simple, then I think people, those parts of the brain don't have anything else to do. So you, you start to wander, right? You get it depending on the story. Sometimes if a simple story, you're just listening to an audio book or something like that. Sometimes it could be really uh, compelling, but, but if it's not, and you don't have the other stuff to, to chew on, then I think that you can lose the thread. Yeah, there's something about that. I just you know, experienced recently going through this where it starts out a little bit like, hey, I don't know about this thing. It's, I'm still trying to find it. Where's the hook? What's getting me excited about it? And as soon as you start, as soon as you start, you know, there's this phase where you start digging into those things and you start finding them or they, they occur to you because maybe your imagination just kicks into gear and you do start isolating things like, oh yeah, I should have a coffee stain on it. And then people are like, yeah, 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 okay, I get it now. Okay. And and you start filling in the the completeness of the world. So it's not just the the document or the it's not just the spreadsheet with the financial forecast. It's everything else around it. Whether it's like you're telling the story more effectively or you are actually now 
much more fully invested and committed to telling a, you know, a compelling story. You just get excited about it. I want to add some more detail. Let's talk about the person who created it in the, the various things that the near future laboratory has done over the years. It's like, we just have, we have a cast of characters and they just continue on. There are these, we got to pull in the data wealth King and, and he's got to have an angle, like just put him on a, like a bus side advertisement. We don't, the story doesn't need to be about him, but he needs to appear. And this is something you hear writers and storytellers talk about that, that some, some of them will say something like, well, at a certain point, I just create these characters and then I just listen to them. They just tell me what happens next. Or you see somebody like William Gibson weaving in characters and cameos, or David Mitchell does this a lot, that, that people keep showing up, the same characters keep showing up. And you see also that different story worlds have different causal models for this. Like when you were talking, I was thinking about Mario. If you've played any of the Mario games, there are all of these things that your curiosity is always rewarded. If you think to yourself, I wonder what's behind that. I wonder what's behind that waterfall. What's over there? There's going to be something there. There's this causal fulfillment of a particular kind of playful curiosity and a set of, of logical cues that something, if you hit something, something's going to happen. If there's two of something that's a significant, there's always a, a, a reward for that kind of noticing. And different stories and different worlds do that in different ways. I think what's, and what, as you were saying, you always want to simulate, you want to create that richness. And once you get a line, a handle on the, the kind of causal vibe, the world building vibe, then it starts to tell itself. And you start imagining the next room or the next space. And you're like, oh yeah, obviously we need to have that guy on the billboard. And th this is going to need to be there. What happens to X? The, the, those things start to, and it's fascinating to me how innate so much of that is that it's not really conscious that it's that we that there's some kind of mental holodeck simulation engine storytelling thing in our heads that I think of sometimes I analogize stories to MP3 files, you know, this compressed format that is somehow decompressed in the in the mind and projected out into something much more complex and nuanced. And it's fascinating to me that we have that engine, that codec. I don't know how far I've down this metaphorical road I want to travel, but there's something really interesting in that. And the fact that it works interpersonally, that group of people can get on the same page about this and riff together. And it makes sense for a group of people together. Yeah, that's uh, that's beautiful. I think as you were talking and it's related to, to the center there is this, I've been just really, I've just gotten hard on understanding the imagination, just even that word and recognizing maybe that it's this evolutionary, exquisite, useful thing that we're, that we, we need to spend more time understand, not just understanding, but actually building up. So I've taken to my metaphor is that it's a muscle and we've let it get flabby and we should be doing imagination exercises like burpees every morning <laughs> because it's this, I, I, I might be taking a kind of cynical view on it, but I feel like it's been left to flounder. The creative ideas are delivered to us and we're not asked to challenge ourselves that ability to make sense of things that, that are, have yet to exist and make them meaningful enough to where you're, you want to explore them either in your mind or in conversation or to challenge and hopefully in a productive, collaborative way, assumptions about what the future looks like. I have so much to say about this. <laughs> I've been thinking about it for a while too, and I totally agree. So I think imagination is the ignition system for all this other stuff that we know we want and is really important, like foresight and anticipating the future for empathy and imagining what it's like to be somebody else or living in other people's shoes, walking in other people's shoes, resilience and adaptation and dealing with the setbacks. And we know we, we care about those other things and stuff like entrepreneurship and innovation and scientific progress. All of that stuff requires imagination, but we almost never focus on it explicitly. And you could argue, it's not hard to argue that actually it's almost like we've designed our educational and our professional worlds to just crush imagination, right? Oh, pounded right. out of people, pounded out of the students, pounded out of the teachers, pounded out of the middle managers. 
and it's viewed with suspicion. So I totally agree that it's this fundamental capacity that we need to foster and that people don't really know what to do with. And I really think you're also spot on about the notion of us feeling anxious about imagination. One thing I'm noodling on is everybody imagines. It's just that often we don't have a lot of volitional control over our imagination. So if you think about anxiety and fear, those are that's our imagination at work, right? You can't help you're awake at night because you're worried about something that could happen in the future. That's a, your imagination engine is cooking. You're caught up in QAnon or some other weird dark web stuff. People are, you could think of that as like the dark arts of imagination. People are using your imagination against you. And so it's there. It's just that we often don't recognize it as something that we have agency over. And so I think there are all these different fascinating levels to this. There's a cognitive and neuroscience level. I'm reading Michael Pollan's book right now about psychedelics, change your mind, how to change your mind. And he's talking about the default mode network, which is maybe the seat of the conscious seat of consciousness, seat of the, the sense of self and ego. Some scientists use these metaphors like the conductor of the orchestra of the mind and what things like meditation or different kinds of sort of trances or extreme athletic activity or taking psychedelics or other drugs can tone down or turn off that default mode network. And it's like the rest of the brain starts to talk to one another instead of all working through the central control. But what's interesting is that this the default mode network is what's active when you're not doing something, when you're not playing chess or giving a lecture or reading a book and you're just mind wandering. So it's also like the default mode network is the seat of imagination. It's what you're doing when you're bored. So I'm fascinated by this. I don't know what I think about it yet, but starting to, that's another thing that I think is really troubling is that we're eating up and it's like we're paving over all of the fields where we used to let these imagination thoughts bloom, right? Anytime you have an instant of free time, you whip out your phone and you start looking at social media or whatever. There's, uh, you never, heaven for fans that more than 15 seconds elapse between the end of your last Netflix show and when the next one starts so that there's a constant stream of entertainment to distract you. That's a little David Foster Wallace call out there. And that's really troubling too, because I think you're right that it, it people don't have as much practice. They don't have the, the sort of vocabulary to imagine. And often when you ask people to imagine something, and I see this a lot with students at the beginning of the semester, hopefully by the end of the semester, they're, they've limbered up. But at the beginning, it's, it's the same. It's very predictable. Everybody has the same first idea and the same second idea. And it's all informed by what's on social media, what the sort of common cultural movies and texts are that we've been engaging with. So I think it's really important to, to create more open space where people also feel empowered and safe to imagine because there's a lot of fear and anxiety in our, not just in imagining something positive, right. Rather than just things you're worried about, but then articulating them and sharing them with others. Yeah, I, that was really powerful. I think the, one of the things is the, even just a vocabulary, I, I don't have it, but just like a, or, or a set of idioms to understand different modalities of the imagination as you just, as even as you were describing it, like that and understanding that maybe this feeling that, that gets summoned forth in your consciousness when you're either asked to imagine or recognizing that now your imagination has been dialed down to minus 90 decibels and recognizing that. And also I think maybe attaching to that feeling of anxiety that obtains when you're asked to imagine because oftentimes it'll just be like, it'll be like, well, I don't know. Or, or you retreat to, I read this report or, or this is what Gartner says, or just those kinds of stock answers and recognizing that in some ways that is a retreat. And also just, I wish almost like trying to adopt, this might be completely wrong, but I feel like adopting and learning how to adopt a, a willing naivete that is almost childlike and ignore the stop act, act your age kind of sensibility, just to be like the imagination of a seven-year-old 
to be like, whoa. It's incredible. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, because I I see this with with my kids and I think all kids, kids have this incredible power, fecundity of imagination. And then there's some I haven't done a lot of research, but there seems to be some research that it's it's basically middle school, which we all know is terrible, which starts to crush imagination because you become more aware of your peers and that sense of conformity and shame and normative pressures. I think people still have imaginative thoughts, but they 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 hide them more because they're worried about being called out, made fun of. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I interrupted you. That was fine. I was just riffing, but I, but I'm glad that you brought up just that that moment, I, which, which sounds about right to me, where it's now you're driven to conform out of those very powerful kind of formative emotions of the shame and embarrassment of being different, of thinking different, of dressing different, of having wild, unexpected, unanticipated revelations about the world that you live in or all, all those kinds of things. And, and it's got to be I don't want to sound like the old guy or something, but it's got to be very different, particularly with all these other channels. So it's not just your peers, it's the the entities and the robots and the algorithms and the influencers that you're exposed to and expected to be exposed to in order to conform even more. And yeah, just like there's no more Montessori school. It's just these are the rules of the game go, going forward. And you just get on rails for a trajectory to a sensible life. I, I think it is. I think we underestimate the the significance of of computational culture the the soft power of just growing up in this world with social media and constant updates which is different from the world that you and I grew up in i don't know how old you were when you got your first email account or i'm guessing a dial up network connections, uh, some kind of modem. Yeah, I grew up with like BBSs and uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which was a much more of a, what's the right analogy? You had to go and find stuff and mm-hmm. it wasn't easy to find it most of the time. And now and it wasn't but, free. It's like, and it wasn't free. Yeah. A line in the house. So it was always like, it, there were all these kind of hoops to go through. Yeah. Somebody needs to use the phone. You got to get off. Yeah. Remember when you would, the call waiting thing would blip. Turn it off before you had the modem. You'd put in the the, the modem dialing code with a couple of keywords. that would turn that off. That's right. Yeah. And now the there's overwhelming evidence of how, how powerful those normative influences are. Facebook has all kinds of data about how toxic things like Instagram can be for teenage girls. For example, it's laughably easy to manipulate us by changing the information diet, the social media diet that we get and making people feel more depressed or less depressed. And so what does that mean for, for the way people are growing up? What does that mean for the that kind of collective imagination space? Now, the, the, I think there are positives too, because there are really interesting ways in which thousands of people, millions of people can can collaboratively imagine stuff in at a much faster pace than was ever possible before. Even the BBS world and the sort of early internet didn't have this kind of fluid meme communication structure. Uh, it's we've wired everybody up to this global hive mind, but so far all we've been able to turn on is the id and there's no ego. And also there's no kind of, protection against the sort of cognitive viruses that sweep through. We have like no immune system for all the bad stuff, but it's, I think a hard time to be growing up and to create that sense of imagination because it's this, it's that balance between being together and being alone. And the, one of the core functions of imagination, I think is really just to imagine other minds because we can never really connect to another mind and the closest, the best forms of telepathy we have basically are stories right now. And sometimes interesting, like interestingly music and art, because we have this weird sort of emotional telepathy that I don't really understand. I don't know if other people understand that better, but at least with storytelling, we have these sort of cognitive correlates to say, Oh, I can write a story in which my character is imagining what somebody else is thinking. You can create these layers of abstraction and structure, but how we imagine stuff now feels very different because when we were growing up, we spent a lot of time being bored 
a lot of time being on our own or having much narrower windows of access. And even if you found something really good, you found, I don't know, a, a series of novels or something that was like, it really spoke to you. And it was like, you find you like connected to, with someone who was speaking your language, then it's, it ends and you can't find another one. It's all much, it was all much harder. There are many more gaps where you had to just do it yourself. You had to fill all of those gaps yourself. And now there's always something else being presented to you to fill in the next gap. So you never have to do it yourself. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned boredom. It it came up in a workshop I was doing when we were talking about these kinds of these kinds of topics. And the common thread was ways, you know, essentially ways of being creative. And so we're talking about design fiction and these kinds of things. And someone brought up, which I'd never thought of before, like, you know, what is the evolutionary function of boredom and how does it play into these kinds of things? And yeah, I don't know if you have any, any speculations or just what does that make you think? It's the only thing I can think of is that it, it, you know, it is providing that essentially that void into which you're expected to fill in something meaningful. And if you're never bored, essentially, you're never really, I don't know, you're not creating something from nothing. You're not creating something from the absence of, of an engaging topic or something to amuse it. I don't think we're ever not really thinking of something pretty sure about that, but it, it got me thinking about the relationship between boredom and the imagination. In my mind, I keep going back. Yeah. When I was a kid and I would get bored, we would just make up material stories. We would start figuring stuff out. Oh, well, I got a piece of cardboard or like this, this yeah, or a box, like the box that, that the new refrigerator came in. There's got to be something in there. Let's go in there and see what happens. I think the box is really the greatest gift you can give to any three to seven-year-old. And I can't tell you how many actual toys or other gifts came and the box was really the best part. And I, so in one sense, I think of boredom as the as a correlate to that effect when you close your eyes and you start to see things behind your eye, or if you step into a totally dark room where the pattern seeking parts of your brain just keep spinning. And if there's nothing outside, they'll generate something inside because it's better to make something to have invented or manufactured some kind of pattern than to have nothing at all. Because that idea of of true emptiness is, is more, much more unsettling. And so I think there's also, I think, an interesting way to to think about this in connection to other animals, to compare ourselves to like dogs or chimpanzees or something and try to figure out, do those animals get bored? And I think some of them do. I feel like I've seen bored dogs before. And you can tell when the dog is bored. The the I think, but I think that the difference with humans is that somehow the the irrepressible imagination energy that had to go has to go somewhere there's so much more of that that whenever there is boredom crazy things happen somebody discovers fire somebody invents writing and it just keeps going and i, I think that the it's this is making me think of the whole the default network idea again because you have to create now you have to actively create the conditions of boredom Boredom is now an unnatural state for us because we've engineered our society, the physical infrastructure, everything about our world so that people will never be bored. And and that's a dangerous way to be. It's, I don't really get, you know, it's sort of like that that's something that part of our brains thought was a good idea, that there should always be something to do and something to look at. And that maybe that's one of the, it's like the, the toddler in us that's entertained me, but actually to get anything real done, you need to have that boredom. So now we have to erect all these bulwarks and we have to turn off all of the devices and we have to have a locked room or whatever. And we have to have this mental discipline, which is almost like a meditative discipline to turn off. Because for for me, it's not even the external stuff that is my barrier from getting into deeper work. It's all the things flashing in my own brain that I can't let go of. I can't stop thinking about everything that has been organized in my life to be like a giant NASA control board of blinking lights and alarm signals. And it's really hard to create that space. And I don't know. There's another great book this guy, Stephen Asma, wrote about the evolution of imagination. And he talks about boredom, too. And he has this idea that there's two there's a sort of linguistic level of imagination, which is the making up new words and wordplay and things like that. But that there's this and that that's mostly connected to what we think of as the cognitive modern mind version of it. But there's this older one that's faster 
and more innate. And that's like improv. If you think about a jazz musician, the musician doesn't have time to cognitively, mentally construct every step or riff with the other players. It happens almost instantaneously. Or it's like when people are dancing or playing sports or something. I'm really interested in that too, this idea of embodied imagination, which maybe gets back to the evolutionary thing as well. And maybe one of the functions of boredom is that you, you know, you practice, you rehearse, you daydream. And sometimes what you're rehearsing is what am I going to do if the saber tooth tiger does this? It's always the saber tooth tigers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that said, yeah, it certainly resonates, particularly the improvising musician. Like back when I used to play jazz, it, it was always much more interesting. It felt, it felt like more the proper creative challenge to not rehearse the solo. It almost seemed like that's not the point, which of course wasn't always the case, particularly the, our competitive high school jazz band. Oftentimes you did rehearse it, but the, that always seemed to be like the sweet spot. That's where you want to be. Like you, you want the moment to take you someplace and maybe you, know, you fall flat on your face, but at the same time, it's, that's just, you couldn't, you, you didn't imagine, you couldn't imagine it for whatever reason. And almost like, that's okay. So that was a, did a little scenario planning on, on at the spur of the moment and didn't quite get anywhere. But I like, I like that notion of the imagine the, the imagination is a way of kind of rehearsing playing. Yeah, I think it's, a, it is, it's, there's a lot of practice involved and getting back to your metaphor of the muscle. It's not something that is just, it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from practice. What instrument did you play? I played, I played bass, saxophone, and guitar. Oh, cool. I played the trumpet and I, you know, played trumpet in high school and jazz bands too. And yeah, I think there's a balance. You don't go into the solo without ever having done a solo before. You don't, it's, it would be really artificial to, to have a tabula rasa. You practice soloing, but there's a fine line between practicing soloing and practicing your solo. You've effectively pre-planned the thing. And I get, I have a, a really like maybe a couple of memories of solos where that, where it really worked out, right. Where it wasn't practiced and I was just in, in the moment. And I think when it works out like that, often I don't remember what I play. And right afterwards, I probably wouldn't have remembered because it was like that whole part of my brain was off and just focusing on this thing in the moment. And there's that expression playing out of your head. And I think, but to get there, you practice. And there's a, there are all these moves. This is the voc- the vocabulary, or there's this phrase I really like the grammar of action. You know, what, like in a, if you're playing a video game and Grand Theft Auto, there's a reason that there's one button you can push to steal any kind of vehicle, which is a shorthand for a complex set of many different actions that you might have to, to do that, open the door and pull out the driver of the car, or maybe, or you hotwire it, there are all these things that happen in the game, but you just push that one button and it, because the game is encouraging you to do that. So the grammar of action has made that set of activities really easy. And so what are the grammars of action for us in our imaginary spaces, you know, for design fiction or for playing jazz or public speaking or, or whatever. And starting to recognize those and understand what the moves are and practice the moves or start to think about different combinations of them. I've had a wonderful time these last, probably since the summer, learning about and discovering and coming across people and writings and Kickstarter projects around solar punk. And I initially, when I stumbled across it, it was listening to a podcast and the fellow who was the guest on the podcast joined my joined my Discord. And then I later found out like, oh, he was the guest who talked about solar punk. So it just became this like kind of wonderful crosstalk. And then he just recently invited this other guy who's got a who's got a, a book coming out on it's a collection of essentially solar punk fiction. So I've just been, yeah, just letting it all wash over me. And then also there was like initial moment where I was, I was embarrassed. I embraced the embarrassment and, and didn't turn it into, hopefully turn it into a positive thing, which was like, wait, solar punk, you mean cyberpunk. <laughs> I love that actually. Right. Yeah, I didn't, it was just, and it was this recognition that I just, I had come up in a world and my, my second 
the second major phase of my science fiction re- literature exposure after the kind of epic Asimovy kind of earlier, I guess, mid 20th century stuff was cyberpunk. And I was like, this is it. This is my science fiction. I can identify with this. And then working at a virtual reality lab on the heels of Neuromancer, it's like, this speaks to me. And then coming across Solarpunk, it was also this recognition. Oh, this is actually beautiful, regardless of the ethos of it, because I'm recognizing that there's a generation that's coming up that's responding almost to cyberpunk, which is beautiful. You see these evolutions in this emergence of a new consciousness when I thought the world was cooked because we were going to only have a cyberpunk future because <laughs> machines are going to take over, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you have, I guess, with the stuff that you've been doing there at Arizona State University, have been part of that movement, conversation, kind of supportive and kind of the infrastructure around it? Yeah. So to connect the, the threads, I, I think Solarpunk is a great example of one of the good things that can come out of this sort of collaborative, hive mind, meme exchange digital imaginary space that we have because in in some ways solar punk seems like it started as a tumblr feed and a sort of visual and artistic exchange of ideas and and almost a curation project more explicitly than something that was an artistic manifesto or anthologies or public events and conferences, though it's now become all of those things too. And I should also say that I'm not like a a central figure in the solar punk world, but I feel like we're fellow travelers with them and we're very much working on some of the same stuff. And we've ended up, I think we are a support structure for a lot of solar punk thinking. So some of the early, we've been involved in this climate futures work really for almost 10 years now, since the beginning of the center. And one of the things we we started early on was we every once in a while we'll do this climate fiction contest writing contest and two writers who co-authored a story in the for the first one of these contests and won that contest were both part sort of core parts of this early solar punk movement and this story is a solar punk story and one of them went on to get a master's degree in sustainability at ASU and worked with us on other projects and is you know still out there writing solar punk stuff. And that I think that what, what I really like about solar punk is it gets to this whole notion of what are the, the causal frames or the kind of the aesthetics, the genres almost that just cyberpunk has a causal, a set of causal genre cues to it. And they're not great. It's not necessarily that they're worlds that look really cool and have lots of interesting technology, but maybe not the future that you want your grandchildren to inherit. And solar punk exactly takes that and reinvents it and say, what if we, what if we did want our grandchildren to inherit this? And what would it mean to, to think about climate futures as a punk project, as a kind of rebellion against the, the, the overarching systems and a rebellion against the pessimism of the sort of cyberpunk narrative. And isn't it fascinating that cyberpunk somehow became the the like the metaphorical backbone of so much of the just it was supposed to be a critique and then it just became true. We yeah. should talk more about that. But solar punk, yeah. So we we're we have lots of different climate futures things. We have these awesome climate imagination fellows right now, and we're working on they're writing positive climate futures. This idea that what we one of the big challenges we collectively face is that far too few far too few people feel empowered to imagine their own futures. And how do we how do we get more people to feel like they have the agency and the responsibility to imagine their own futures and communities to imagine their own futures? And then specifically around climate, how do we get beyond for years it was the challenge felt like we have to convince people to take climate change seriously. And this is a huge problem and people are just putting their heads in the sand. That's not the case anymore. I think people, I think that that seesaw has flipped and a lot of people now recognize that climate change is a huge challenge, but they have no idea what to do about it. And it still feels really complex and abstract and impossible. So the second stage is what, how do we imagine 
climate futures that are actually positive and that motivated us to do stuff that we want to work towards. And I don't mean positive, like it's all going to be great. It's all going to be sunshines and unicorns, but positive. Here's something that could happen that we actually want to aim for. This is maybe what it would, what a good version of the future might look like that's still grounded in the science that we know and the predictions, and the models that we have. But it's not just a terrible, everything is going to be bad and you should just stop doing everything that you're doing. Uh, because the, the, talking about anxiety and fear, if you only have the negative stories, it's really hard to motivate people to, to take the kinds of change. People have to be excited about the change that we, the changes we need to make can't all be, uh, you have a bunch of stuff you like and you have to give it all up. The change has to be, this life you live now is fine, but there's a much better life, right? We could be living this much more inclusive and inspiring and um, sustainable life together. And it's going to be better. So we should all work towards that because it's going to be a happier, better, more inclusive, more inspiring, more just and equitable story. So that's a underpinning behind the stuff that we're doing. And it feels very much like we're just one part of this whole ecosystem of all sorts of different people working around climate futures, but it's been tremendous fun. Yeah, I can imagine. So let's get into this one thing about, as you mentioned it, and I'm fascinated by it, and maybe just seeing a squint of a contrast between the the way in which cyberpunk was was taken in by how the way it was read and interpreted and then enacted, materialized, and in contrasting that with maybe what we would hope for solarpunk. And I'm just wondering, as a person who has a sensitivity to the power of the written word, narrative, and literature, if there's if you have any insight in that. Are you asking how do we make sure that what happened to Cyberpunk doesn't happen to Solarpunk? Well, I guess I, I'm, I'm more asking, like, why did what happened with Cyberpunk happen with Cyberpunk? And do you see anything in Solarpunk that is where it's operating to promote? And just, you know, my, my own very naive instinct is that is that the Cyberpunk made the the things that we don't want the hero for the purposes of the narrative and even though the narrative was a critique any writer will tell you it's you you can't possibly control how people are going to interpret what you're going to do but that maybe solar punk could it be that it's operating in a different mode maybe either deliberately or just by nature of the of, of the generation that is spending a lot of time energy and attention on it i think it's a great question and it's a question that's too vast to really be answered in any definitive way, because exactly what you're talking about, that stories are so protean and will be used and adapted in so many ways. And so for cyberpunk, I think part of this is the it's its own genre history tracing back to noir and the idea of noir as a similar kind of anti-hero narrative structure where you're you're critiquing the, the fact that the world is, is terrible and uncaring, but you make your characters who are the, the people around the edges or the people forging their compromised way through this dark and complicated universe. You make them so compelling that in a way you underwrite or validate that the world structure, because you say, if the world wasn't this way, then we couldn't have Humphrey Bogart. In the playing this role. And that would be really sad because I'm, I love Humphrey Bogart in that role. And I think cyberpunk falls into the same category, but also a lot of people just didn't read it as satirical. People read Snow Crash and they see like a blueprint, they see a business model <laughs> instead of a bunch of satirical pokes at a corporate structure a world dominated by corporations and all these other problems with the way that universe is made. I think it comes down to the causal boundaries of where do you build your sandbox? And Cyberpunk built a sandbox to say, oh, the power of the corporations is un unshakable. That's never really going to change. You can compromise, you can carve out little islands of freedom, but that's just going to be the that's just going to be the way the world is. So I think solarpunk comes from a different angle, and I think it a, a lot of solarpunk is trying to explore these very different models of human relationships and human agency. I like it's not really a solarpunk novel, but Cory Doctorow's novel Walkaway is very explicitly a kind of utopian experiment in people who are going to reject the cyberpunk world and attempt to create something 
totally different. And it's a, that kind of utopianism is, I think, really important. And that's part of what solar punk has right now is that energy of, of hopefulness. And that may be the most rebellious. So this is the fun inversion is that the, the thing that makes solar punk is, I think, hope. The idea of this kind of fundamental optimism that and I hope and optimism are not the same thing. So there's some disentangling to be had there. But this fundamental hopefulness, let's say, that things could get better. And if we work on it, we can make things better. So not only is there a possibility of positive change, but also that the characters in these stories and by implication, the readers of these stories have the agency to move us towards that positive change. So that I think is the the difference. And I think that it's the same. It's always the same moral hazard is co-optation, right? That that people are going to take these narratives when they're sufficiently popular and use them for greenwashing or superficial, adapt the tropes without really adapting the ethos underneath it. And of course, I think that's totally going to happen. It's probably happened already. The question is, how do people read the stories and how do they share the stories? And is there enough of a sort of coherence, consensus, momentum around that, like a a sort of narrative and genre, collective cohesion, a shared imaginary, if you will, that it counterbalances when somebody else says, oh, I'm going to use this set of references to sell you a new kind of toothpaste. Cool. I dig it. The Center for Science of the Imagination has a mission of inspiring collective imagination for better futures. We're trying to work on getting people trying to change our whole relationship to the future and get people to feel a sense of agency and responsibility. So it's not somebody else's problem. It's not completely hopeless. It's not that some people in white lab coats or some tech bros in Silicon Valley are going to solve it all for us. It's up to us. And if we're going to deal with that challenge, we need to start telling better stories, more inspiring, more inclusive stories about the future. Ed Fenn, director of Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination. That was lots of fun. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I also hope you consider supporting this podcast. You can do so over at patreon.com slash near future laboratory. Thank you very much to all 17 of my wonderful patrons. You know, you can become a patron too. It's super easy and every little nudge of encouragement helps. Also, don't forget, I've got a newsletter over there at buttondown.com slash design fiction. A lot of these ideas that we discuss here are often fleshed out there. There's also General Seminar, which is at generalseminar.com, which just kicked off season two with the seminar on The Generalist, and two more later in February, one on Solarpunk and another on NFTs. I think there's still some space for those. I'll be scheduling the March General Seminar shortly, but uh, we also have a Discord server where, again, a lot of these conversations uh, are fleshed out and played out and even developed. Okay, I'll put all those links in the show notes. Um, Okay, that's it. Thank you for listening. Seriously, thank you. That's it. I'm Julian, and I'm out.